is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today's show, do you think your office is stuffy or dusty or all-around dirty? Is that a rhetorical question? Maybe it is, but that air you're breathing when you're there might just be better than what you're breathing at home. We'll go in-depth into the findings of a new study that may have you thinking a lot more about ventilation systems than you ever imagined. The CDC wants to know what you're flushing down your toilet. Wastewater may hold the key to learning about COVID spread in your city. And while scientists study that aspect, others are looking into how nasal vaccines might be the best way to stop this pandemic. Spotify sticking with Joe Rogan for now. Video clips of Rogan using racial slurs went viral recently. Spotify says now's not the time to get rid of him. President Biden meeting today with the Chancellor of Germany. Big topic, what to do about Russia and Ukraine. Watching your teen or young adults texting all the time might be annoying, but it could have mental health benefits for them. And the Super Bowl figures to help L.A.'s economy, but probably not as much as the estimates predict. Let's start with air quality at home and in the office. With us is Jenny Correo, study uh, co-author and professor in the Texas A&M School of Public Health. Thanks for being with us. So uh, if I understand the study, uh, the air that we're breathing at home might be worse than what we're breathing in our offices, which seems almost impossible to believe. Well, yes. And also with us, it's Dr. Uh, Taekyun Rock, who is part of the study as well. And there is a also co-author of the, uh, of the study and a colleague in the uh, School of Public Health. And yes, that's, uh, it's incredible to believe that the truth. We did a study in the, the offices of the McAllen campus and the, uh, from the staff of the individuals who are working there and also uh, in their homes. And we had the results of those, uh, of those studies. We use an air monitoring which is called the footbot to study and analyze the particles, 2.5 particles and uh, the VOCs, total VOCs, volatiles. And we were able to identify highest numbers in the homes that in the, uh, the, uh, the offices. That study was done uh, first at the offices because we had first to uh, to monitor, not to monitor. Well, to let, me, let me, but Jenny, let, let me ask you though, why why would it be the case that uh, our homes, which I think we all think of as, as, you know, we take care of them and, and we have the ability to... We're supposed to clean every clean once in a while. Every now and then, right. <laughs> uh, why would it be the case that our homes are, are, are worse to breathe air in than in big, you know, sort of indifferent offices? Well, if you think about it, the buildings are normally using a much better and larger HVAC air conditioning, uh, much more larger and better with many more uh, HIPAA uh, filters. Sometimes at home, we we don't have the need, the, uh, the care that we need to do, for example, if, we, if you have uh, carpets at home, you know that they, they capture a lot of uh, dust. So the other problem that we have is that when you're cooking and you don't use events, you are producing a lot of particles that you are breathing. 
and therefore that increases the uh, air pollution inside the house. Well, Jenny Carrillo there, a study author, professor in the Texas A&M School of Public Health. So yeah. your house dirtier than you think it is. Well, yeah, because you're saying like if you're you're cooking and I have a solution right. to that. Just I don't order, cook. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't How did cook. I know? <laughs> so it's not an issue. The stove is so clean because he's never used it. I have a stove. <laughs> Coming up, Spotify's CEO says he's sticking with Joe Rogan for now, despite his past use of racial slurs. And uh, don't get annoyed if your teen or college-age kid is always texting, always on the phone. Might actually be good for them. Right now, though, the CDC recently announced it is expanding programs to monitor COVID in wastewater. Scientists in California and around the country have been studying sewage to figure out when surges are hitting and declining, as well as looking for emerging variants. With us now is Edwin O, professor in UNLV's School of Medicine. He's developed new approaches to study wastewater for COVID and the flu as well. Thanks for being with us. So uh, I know this has been going on for a while. What's the advantage of looking at wastewater to help determine the level of, of COVID, for example, transmission in the community. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, really appreciate the coverage. There, there are really two key uh, pieces of uh, intelligence here that you can get with monitoring sewage. One is viral counts. You can, you can look at viral levels at various zip codes, communities, and be able to predict, or at the very worst, mirror um, human infection levels. So sometimes you might have a seven-day or a 14-day window to um, in anticipation of a potential surge. And so that's, that's one level. The other level is variance. Uh, we can use sewage to be able to determine when a variant starts to emerge in a community. This was something that we found with Omicron for Las Vegas uh, before our very first uh, human infection a week later. Um, it's it's quite remarkable, uh, the amount of information you can get from sewage. And, and part of the reason that we can get this type of intelligence is you and I, we, we contribute uh, fecal matter to sewage. So anything that we find in that sewage is representative of a human community. Go team. We're all in this together. Um, do you think people, I mean, there are always stories about it and, and all through the pandemic, there are always people researching it and, you know, you were one of them. But do you think people actually caught up to this idea through this last wave? Because I remember a whole bunch of tweets from like back east, right, New York and Boston. And they were saying, especially when Omicron was starting the decline, they were saying, you know what, we've seen the decline in the sewage levels. It's going to happen. And sure enough, week, week and a half later, there it was. Yeah, really, over the last year, we've just seen how sewage could predict the rise and fall of, uh, of the surge of infection levels from anything from alpha to lambda to delta and now for Omicron. And, and obviously, our, 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 our sites are set on BA.2 or the stealth Omicron right now, which, uh, which is slowly emerging across the country. Are you starting to see or others starting to see anything new or potentially disturbing developing? Yeah, a number of labs across the country have started to see these very rare uh, mutations in SARS-CoV-2 in sewage. And we're not sure if this is coming from one or two immune compromised humans or whether this is coming from our uh, feral uh, animal population that's, that's potentially contributing uh, waste to stormwater. Um, in addition, uh, pets um, can also contribute 
uh, fecal matter that might be flushed down our typical sewage lines. So there are a number of different variables that we're all, we're all looking at to, to, to figure out where some of these rare mutations might be coming from in sewage. So obviously watching for new variants and tracking this is, is a big thing. But how in practice would this help us? later on down the line i mean if we get something else or we're starting to watch maybe next winter or whatever it is i mean we can track cities and that's the obvious one but how dialed in can you get can you go to certain communities and say let's put up a pop-up testing site there because we've had a spike in in this area in what we're seeing yes and no it's it's one of the beauties of um and and disadvantages of wastewater sampling um one of the beauties of wastewater sampling is we can one of the beauties and disadvantage is that we cannot pinpoint a single human being. So using this surveillance, we cannot say that um, a person at address X, zip code Y, uh, has this variant. Go to that location and find that person. Wastewater surveillance cannot do that, which is really the beauty of the system. The system allows us to look at large communities and it allows us to deploy public health resources to a general community in anticipation of a rare variant that might be growing over time or uh, viral levels that might be growing over time. So if we see a rare mutation, we're not necessarily going to react or act uh, immediately. We're going to be monitoring it to see whether that those levels increase over time. And if they increase over time, then um, it's likely that we're having uh, community transmission of were, this mutation. Were these systems uh, in place before the pandemic, or are these all installed afterwards? Yeah, so so really, um, th- this is a system that's been around for some time for polio, for hepatitis A. We've been able to really only look at um, a binary outcome. Is it there? Is it not there? But with COVID, we, we've gone one step further. We've been able to look at sewage and be able to use the same technology that we use for nasal pharyngeal swabs on sewage. And that is to sequence entire genomes uh, to look for mutations of interest. Edwin O., professor in UNLV's School of Medicine. President Biden meeting with Germany's chancellor at the White House. The big focus how to handle a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the Super Bowl is flooding businesses around Los Angeles with money, but it might be as big of an economic help, might not be, as you may think it will be. Right now, though, the COVID vaccine that's uh, coming, the next one might not be a shot. Scientists hoping a cheap, widely available nasal vaccine could be the ultimate difference maker. Dr. Peter Polisi, chair of the Department of Microbiology, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, has helped develop a nasal COVID vaccine. And Dr. Michal Tall, immunologist at Stanford, who has studied nasal vaccines. Thanks to you both. Uh, Dr. Polisi, let's start with you. Besides ease of use, you know, no needles, just squirt or swab or whatever it is. Um, what are the other benefits of a nasal vaccine versus a traditional one? Okay, let me start out and say that the traditional COVID-19 vaccines are fantastic. And these are the messenger RNA vaccines by Moderna and Pfizer. These are really great vaccines. And I think we should be all very, very thankful that these vaccines exist. And please vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. Having said that, However, there is uh, some space for some better vaccines. We all learn that uh, these variants, such as the Omicron, break through. And we would like to have vaccines which also uh, prevent this breakthrough, uh, which we are observing in the last several weeks. 
And those would be in contrast to the mRNA vaccines, which are injected, they are sprayed into the nose. And uh, these uh, nasal vaccines actually induce an immune response in the respiratory tract. And that is important because the COVID-19 virus, South coronavirus 2, is actually transmitted through the respiratory tract. We all know that they, they are aerosol driven and by inducing an immunity in the respiratory tract by having nasal vaccines, which has, can be sprayed into the nose, we should be able to make vaccines which prevent the uh, transmission from one person to the other. Okay, so Dr. Tall, am I correct then that the, the proper way that this would be used, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is one would still be vaccinated with a, and for the moment we'll call it a traditional vaccine, a shot in the arm, to build up systemic immunity to prevent you from serious illness, but you would supplement that, would you, with a nasal vaccine to prevent infection? Is that is that that's, pretty much it? That's exactly right. It would be like a different kind of booster, um, but instead of following up with a booster in the arm, this would be following up with a booster that's that's like a spritz into the nose. But um, one of the big reasons, the big incentives to do that in this context right now is that there's a lot of people who've already been vaccinated and have made really good responses that will protect them from severe disease and hospitalization. And what we're really trying to get is to get them over to also having nice protection at the entrances to their body. Um, so, you know, along all of those, you know, what we call mucosa in the, in the nose, in the mouth, um, so that where the virus is coming in, they've got protection there ready to go. If we're using it as a booster, theoretically, would that also speed up the process for testing it and getting it approved and all that? Because if we went just the straight, it's a new thing route, we know that can take time. Well, it's still, it's still going to take, it's still going to need you know, those same kinds of trials to test if it's working. But the good thing is that if we're testing this to try to prevent transmission, that's a little bit uh, quicker of an endpoint to when we have that data than trying to see, you know, does this reduce death or hospitalization, um, which is, it's slightly longer from when you're infected to when you, you know, have right. those severe outcomes than just, if I was exposed, did I get infected? Dr. Polisi, uh, there is a nasal vaccine for influenza, but it never really took off, uh, at least in in this country. Why would one think that one uh, nasal spray vaccine for uh, Omicron or for the coronavirus would be more, uh, you know, acceptable or accepted? As you mentioned, as you said, the uh, live virus vaccine for against influenza is a nasal vaccine, and it is very good for younger uh, people, children particularly. And uh, this is not directly comparable and transferable to uh, COVID-19 because it's really apples and oranges, these different vaccines. So I'm hopeful that a a nasal vaccine for COVID-19 may actually uh, be better than it is for flu, which is 
not uh, a general vaccine for all age groups, but mostly for children. For COVID-19, I hope that it would be uh, more um, appropriate for everyone and, uh, and as Dr. Tarl said, uh, prevents transmission and prevents infection. Dr. Peter Polisi, Chair of the Department of Microbiology, Icon School of Medicine, Mount Sinai. Dr. Michal Tal, immunologist at Stanford. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. You know, the viral video on social media clips of Joe Rogan using racial slurs comes as he's been slammed, accused of promoting medical misinformation on his podcasts about uh, COVID vaccines. Now, the CEO of Spotify says the comments are incredibly hurtful, but doesn't believe silencing Rogan is the answer. So will this be the end of efforts to cancel Rogan? Robert Thompson is a media studies expert and director of the Blyer Center for Television and Pop Culture at Syracuse University. Thanks for being back with us. So um, the uh, CEO, Spotify, yesterday uh, puts out this statement for all the people who work for him, uh, and I'm sure was aware that it would certainly get out uh, beyond that, uh, saying, you know, yeah, it's unfortunate. All these things are hurtful uh, to many people, but no intention of removing uh, Joe Rogan from his, I think it's $100 million, if I read that correctly earlier, uh, contract for his podcast. The right decision? Yeah, well, uh, you're right. It's uh, That is of the number that uh, circulates around. It's also their number one podcast. And, of course, Spotify podcasting is their future. They don't want to be just a place that you uh, collect your uh, playlist. They want to be a place which uh, cashes in on the new income possibilities of podcasts. And I think uh, last I checked, Joe Rogan made up about 4.5% of their entire podcast uh, uh, audience. So he's very important uh, to them. Uh, this time they've gone a little further in the, uh, we, you know, this apology we saw uh, to some extent last time in response to the COVID information. Now with this new uh, uh, racist uh, language, uh, they've apparently taken off anywhere between 70 and 100 episodes of the show, depending on uh, which reports uh, you read. And there's a commitment now to spend lots of money to develop programming uh, from marginalized artists and performers and uh, all that kind of thing, all of which seems to be kind of a, you know, that's what we're going to do while we keep our big hit podcaster on, the, on our service. So what is their relationship with them as they've now defined it because first go around it was the very kind of facebook approach which is we are just the open air square and we're going to have a platform for his podcast but he's an audio content creator like any other uh, not to mention the hundred million dollars we're paying him to have the exclusive rights to all these but we're going to treat him like that but now they're saying you know what we did have these kind of behind the scenes discussions over the language and we're going to pull these so that's that's those two things are different well, they are. I mean, and of course, once you start paying for the exclusive rights, and as you point out, not just paying for them, paying, uh, you know, massive amounts, uh, one can no longer present this as, oh, we're just a, uh, you know, we're just like the telephone company. We don't know what people say in their conversations kind of thing. So that, that ship has already uh, sailed, and that movement is uh, already happening. And I think they're trying to uh, figure out as this goes along how they can keep their biggest producer uh, of content. At the same time, um, they don't want to be, and, and these, uh, uh, these controversies get more and more problematic as the weeks go on. Um, 
So we'll have to see if there's still yet other shoes to uh, uh, to drop here. And and I think that the, these relationships between these artists, are, everyone is figuring out. At the same time, Spotify's stock, which went way up in May of 2020, when uh, uh, after um, Rogan signed the deal, uh, has been sliding and has gone down uh, by by like yesterday or the day uh, before uh it's almost lost all the gains that it had had thanks to getting uh, Rogan signed up in the first place now i don't think we can blame that on what's going on with joe rogan lots of places peaked during the uh pandemic and been moving in uh the same directions but there are a lot of different variables going on here in what already let's face it is still a very very new industry I'm curious, what do you think, as somebody in the academic field, what is the message that students, do you think, get from this sort of maneuver where the CEO, you know, he's got a $100 million, and I can't divorce that figure from the discussion, because I think it's probably the most important part of the discussion. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. Yeah, so so what what's the message it sends? So if something is worth $100 million to a company, it's willing to, you know, do some things, but not a lot of other things because there's just too much money and money trumps all. Yeah, I, I think most students are very, very cynical about this kind of thing. In, in other words, I think most of them know exactly what the dynamics of uh, all of this is, right down to all of the details. I mean, you, you could have predicted virtually every step of how this happened. The, 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 the supercut uh, of the, these N-word utterances uh, come out. You could have almost timed to the minute when the apology would come out. You could practically have written uh, uh, what that apology was, and then Spotify's response, some kind of nod to uh, uh, developing marginalized groups. I mean, I think uh, the average 20-year-old, the age of most of my students, has seen this process play out so many times uh, that I think they can only uh, they can only see it logically as just the absolute inevitability of how the culture industries work in this country. Robert Thompson, media studies experts, director of the Blyer Center for TV and Pop Culture at Syracuse University. President Biden has just met at the White House with Germany's new chancellor, with Russia and Ukraine dominating the conversation. There's still concern Russia might be planning an invasion, and soon. President Biden says the two countries would take a united approach to the tensions. Germany's chancellor saying a reaction to an invasion has been prepared. Aaron David Miller, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowments for International Peace and a CNN Global Affairs analyst. Thanks for being back with us. So remind us uh, how we got to this point, because before the talk was that Germany always seemed a little bit reticent to act, to do something here. They were the quiet ones. Why was that? Where you stand in life has a lot to do with where you sit. And Germany sits in a much different place than Britain, uh, than France, and certainly than the United States, which has non-predatory neighbors to its north and south and fish to its east and west, what one historian called our liquid assets. That explains a hell of a lot about why the Germans react to things the way they do. Uh, under Merkel, you had a strong leader, uh, a Christian Democratic Party, um, that was relatively unified. Uh, Schultz is not Merkel. Uh, he's not of her party. And he contends with certain uh, a number of constraints, uh, internal domestic political constraints, which Merkel was much better at managing. One is German dependence on Russian energy sources, which is huge. Price of electricity is rising. That means natural gas is a substitute. And the Russians have a lot to say about gas shipments, both both with respect to supply 
and price. And you have statutes, um, I believe, um, legislative in Germany that prevent the transfer of lethal military equipment to non-NATO, non-EU members. All of this, I think, constrains this particular German leader, probably more than Merkel, but even Merkel uh, wanted a relationship with Vladimir Putin. So the Germans are on board. Uh, whether they'll take a leading role in imposing sanctions should Putin invade is another is another matter. And that was the big talk today, right? That, yes, there is at least some plan from them and from us for sanctions if he, Putin, does move. Yeah, I mean, I think the prospects of Nord Stream 2, which is extremely important to the Russians, as well as to the Germans, uh, it seems to me, by whatever device or constraint or or actions taken, Nord, Nord Stream 2 is going to be dead on arrival should the Russians mount the kind of military offensive that the, the Pentagon, CIA, and the Biden administration continues to believe they're on the cusp of doing, even though they always suggest that Putin has not made a final decision on how and or when, uh, or even if uh, he wants that kind of Russian military operation. Is there any sort of consensus emerging among experts in this area about what Mr. Putin is intending to do, or is it just impossible to figure out? You know, I, I spent I spent 10 years as an intelligence analyst at the Department of State. And, you know, reading what the other guy or 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 lady is, is wants to do is is virtually impossible. And with Putin, uh, you can make a case uh, on one hand that he's climbed up a tree so high, his demands are so extreme and so excessive. That to mobilize for three weeks now, when, I'll ask the two of you, when was the last time any world leader kept the entire uh, media establishment on a global scale and the international community on, uh, uh, on the collective edge of their, the edge of their collective seats for now almost a month? I mean, we can go back and talk about Cuba, which lasted almost, almost a month. Yeah. Or George W. Bush's preparations uh, with respect to Iraq, which which kept people guessing uh, for for quite a number of months. But we haven't seen anything like this. And the, the reality is Putin created this crisis. And it will be Putin who did, largely determines, in my judgment, how it's going to end. What about how this president here talks about it because Ukraine was upset for some of the language he used by saying that, you know, you're pretty much saying it's a foregone conclusion. It's all up to him and he's going to come anyways. And now today, President Biden saying, hey, it's wise for Americans to leave uh, Ukraine. Diplomats will stay, but the rest of you get out. Kind of, again, seems like we already think he's going to do it. Well, remember, you have uh, a, a very sad episode in August called Afghanistan. While the decision to extricate American forces from an unwinnable 20, 20 year old war was the right one, the process by which it was executed, uh, you know, revealed fundamental problems with American competency and capacity. The shadow of Afghanistan is still a long one for the Biden administration. So obviously the president is going to make it unmistakably clear. He certainly doesn't want to get caught in a situation where he's encouraged Americans to stay. But the broader issue, I think, is is this. Um, the United States, unlike Russia, is simply not prepared, and I'm not arguing we should be prepared, to sacrifice American lives in defense of Ukraine. However important Ukraine is and however consequential and, and difficult it would be to see a Russian victory in Ukraine, whatever that would mean, by the way, 
overthrowing the government, an incursion in the East, which expanded Russian control for the West, destabilizing the current Zelensky government, whatever, however this ends, it's unmistakably clear to me that Putin has a vital interest in determining what transpires there. As, as important as Ukraine is, we don't. And when I say vital interest, I mean the following that an American president would be willing to put American men and women in harm's way. And I don't believe the majority of the American public, I would be out there in the streets protesting, frankly, if this administration decided after Iraq and Afghanistan to deploy American forces where we do not have a geographic, or frankly, in many respects, a po the political will to do what Mr. Putin can do should he decide to invade. I, I last point. You know, negotiations succeed, and there may be room here for a diplomatic uh, off-ramp. They succeed with under three conditions, whether the parties are willing and able to negotiate. We don't know that. Number two, is there a basis for a balance of interests, which would allow each side to walk away with a, quote, win, unquote. And finally, the timing. Uh, Woody Allen once famously said that 80% of life is showing up. Well, to paraphrase Woody Allen, it's showing up at the right time. I don't think Mr. Putin, frankly, is, is done yet with trying to milk this crisis, divide the alliance. We'll see what happens with Macron's visit. Macron, Putin might be pushing Macron to say, you know, we shouldn't allow Ukraine to join NATO or let's Im impose a 25 year moratorium. Um, so Putin wants to divide the NATO alliance. Um, let's hope it holds. Aaron David Miller, Senior Fellow, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, CNN Global Affairs Analyst. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So we see all the young people buried in their phones, looking at this, looking at that, social media, texting, lots and lots and lots of texting. Oh, I was texting, sorry. Yes. A new study, though, to the show. <laughs> shows all that texting can be a good thing for millennials and Gen Zers. It found a, it reduces stress, anxiety, depression when they text friends and family. Study author Tara Suin, uh, Suinyati Chanporn. Did I get that right? Am I close? Yes. I did. Okay. Is a, prof is a professor in the Department of Human Communication Studies at Cal State Fullerton, and she goes by Dr. Tara. Uh, so uh, all that texting that when we pass people texting on the street and texting in the restaurant and texting in the movie theaters and texting in the cars, it's actually good. Sounds them. like you don't like this. I don't like it. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm not sure about texting while crossing the street, but definitely there are some benefits to texting with friends and family, uh, which goes against this general belief that texting is bad. Okay, so in what situations is it good? And I guess the baseline here is, look, maybe it's like less of a phone call generation. So if they're using this means of communication anyways, let's use it and then some good things can come of it. Exactly, exactly. Yes. So uh, behaviorally, Gen Z and younger millennials tend to prefer texting over phone calls. And through texting, they talk to each other and get social support. And all of that is a positive effects of texting on particularly in my study, mental health. But we all know mental health is heavily affected, uh, heavily associated with physical health, too. But is there a downside to that? Because on the one hand, if texting makes them feel more confident or or they it relieves their stress, 
it also means they're not practicing their skills and actually being able to verbalize their thinking and to have a discussion with another human being. Uh, and that's an interesting point. I think there is always kind of an intergenerational difference in behavior, in communication behavior. But for Gen Z, uh, texting can be translated to social situations. In fact, I think it eases them uh, in terms of knowing each other first through texting. And then when do they do meet in person? So now a lot of people are going back to colleges, in-person classes. I think they just kind of uh, carry on from their texting communication to face-to-face. I don't think it hinders that much uh, the face-to-face communication. What about how, you know, others communicate with them? Because one of the things you looked at was like the just to check in to see how you are. Let's let's visualize like the college kid, right? Uh, right. Are you stressed? How's it going? Just making sure everything's the, the check-in text is is really good because maybe if they don't like the phone calls and you call either A, they don't want to call because they see it as stressful. They don't want to talk on the phone or B, it's <laughs> like, why are you calling me? What's wrong? Yeah, I think that's really on point. I think uh, from family members, texting would be kind of like adjusting your behavior to meet them, you know, kind of like meet them where they are. So uh, I would say checking in regularly through texting would be a good strategy. Okay, so here's a, since I guess I'm the naysayer, so here's another naysayer. (laughs) Well, uh, because also by texting, uh, you know, unless you rely almost exclusively on autocorrect, which often gets the words wrong anyway, uh, also by texting, not only are you losing the ability to better hone your verbal skills at communication, but for the most part, I see the text that I get, and mostly it's misspellings, grammar is bad, a lot of emojis, so pictures instead of actual <laughs> words. So are these people, are, are the, or is this generation or both generations, uh, are they really getting a benefit when they're not practicing both verbal skills and also the ability to actually write? Yeah, that's an interesting point uh, because I think that they also do voice notes, which is verbal communication by recording a voice note and sending it to their friends and family. So in terms of speaking, they are speaking to voice notes are very popular. Uh, In terms of writing, my study didn't really look into that. However, I do know just from my students telling me that uh, they they think it's two separate things, that they're already writing a lot. Uh, in classes, in co- in their college. So texting and writing, like they can do both. What about online therapy? Because some of these offer phone calls or, you know, FaceTime or even like it's a text or email kind of system. And I think a lot of people write off the third one, like it's not going to work. I need to talk to somebody. But maybe for some, the writing in and the, the instant messaging is, is A-OK. Totally. So in my study, uh, Gen Z reported that they found texting therapy quite effective, in fact, uh, as compared to face-to-face and phone calls. And here are a couple of reasons. One, uh, they're Gen Z, so they're younger. They perhaps live with their parents. They don't know how to tell their parents that they want to go see a therapist. So maybe going to see a therapist, that's like a barrier. Number two, uh, maybe they live with their parents and they can't do a phone call. So to them, texting therapy can be quite powerful. Dr. Tara, Cal State Fullerton, thanks for talking to us. Super Bowl, more than just a game to decide the NFL championship. Oh, it's a major spectacle that brings 
its own economy. People fly into town a week or two out from the game. They spend lots and lots of money on lots of different things. And then we get all the news stories saying it's going to be such an economic boom, right? Yeah. And uh, the Convention Bureau always puts out the stuff. Oh, yeah. And they yeah. say, uh, hey, $475 million, maybe something like that. Lauren Heller is an economics professor at Campbell School of Business at Barry College in Georgia, authored a 2020 study, co-authored the study on the Super Bowl spending in the Journal of Sports Economics. She says numbers like that are uh, way too high. So, Lauren, why don't uh, these big games bring the benefits that everybody uh, seems to think that they do? And I really wish that they would in some ways, right? Um, I don't love rating on other people's parades, um, but <laughs> they, they often don't differentiate in these studies between what an economist would call a gross and a net visitor to a city, right? So um, there's something called the substitution effect that we talk about in economics. So for example, um, hotels rooms don't normally just sit empty waiting for um, people to you know, come and use them. Um, there's at least some occupancy already. And often people might substitute doing the Super Bowl or something else for something else that they would plan on anyway, right? This would be especially true with the Rams playing at home um, to the extent that you've got hometown visitors, right? So they might spend their money on the Super Bowl instead of something else. But these economic impact studies typically only look at the spending on the Super Bowl, not what they would have spent on something else, if that makes sense. So the, um, that number that, that Mike just gave, the city is saying about, what, $475 million. It expects yeah. to, to make. So uh, is there any yeah, estimate? Laughs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it going to be at least like more than 10 bucks? Uh, yeah, I I typically, right, um, my favorite rule of thumb, right, I don't have an exact estimate for this Super Bowl, right? I've only looked at past Super Bowls. But my, typically, if you compare these economic impact studies to what the sort of more academically rigorous studies look at, uh, it's about a tenth of a tenth. what the economic, yes, about like move a decimal point. So, I mean, that's still not nothing, right? $47 million is still a decent amount, right? I, I, I it's not $475 million. Oh, don't be greedy. If somebody gave you $47 million, <laughs> I take it. Yeah. I take two it. weeks notice, two days notice, you're out of here. Um, two hours. So who makes the money, though? Because there's all, all these thoughts like, oh, we're going we're gonna to give to the restaurants and we're going to give to all the small business owners. Well, well, maybe, right, if people go to the restaurants. Um, but what if usual people skip over going out because they know there's going to be all these crowds of people? I mean, can it, exactly. it's always like a two-side effect, actually, right? Yeah, they might actually skip out a few days later. We actually call that the hangover effect um, in – you know, in papers and stuff, right? The idea that people might still avoid downtown right, waiting for the crowds to dissipate from the Super Bowl. Um, but also um, another way to think about this is, you know, if the Super Bowl causes hotel prices to double, for example, right? It's unlikely that the wages of local hotel workers and cleaning staff are going to get doubled, <laughs> right? So all that extra revenue goes to shareholders not in the local economy or the hotel owner who's much less likely to spend the money locally. So now, to be clear, as an economist, I'm pretty agnostic about who the money goes to specifically for something like a Super Bowl. But if the city residents are going to be the ones paying higher taxes for a new stadium or higher costs or higher traffic congestion or more police, then they should be at least aware that they're not receiving all of the benefits. So I presume that city leaders that come up with these projections, in this case, in L.A., 475 million. I mean, they must be aware of these studies and they must know 
that the amount of money they're actually going to end up with is, I mean, you said about a tenth, whatever that figure is, it's going to be greatly lower than what they're telling the public. So do they just come up with these figures because they use it to basically lie to the public as an excuse for, for wanting to have these games? I think it's the sin of ignorance rather than malice, if that makes anyone feel how can better. they be but um, how could they i mean this is probably a weird question to ask of a politician but how can even they be that dumb <laughs> well uh well part of it is i think they there's wishful thinking here right they want to be the person that uh, brings the super bowl to la or they want to be the person that brings the new stadium right and all those things they get to you know fly on the jets you know with the super bowl winners or whatever right they get all of these benefits that also help them politically uh, and it certainly doesn't help. It doesn't hurt if you've got a big economic impact estimate, right, from one of these analytics firms, right, um, who are in the business of, right, getting paid lots of money to make these big inflated numbers, right? The politicians win, the NFL owners win. The only people that don't really win are the people paying for it, right? <laughs> um, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> I no, I'm I'm not a huge fan of subsidies for stuff like this. If you can't tell, um, so I care a whole lot about the impacts of taxation on, you know, everyday people. Um, And I just think that this is one example, if you're thinking about where to spend precious government money, right? Because there's something we talk about in economics called opportunity costs, right? If you're not spending it on the stadium, where would you have spent it, right? So all all of these things have costs. And if you're going to take your precious tax dollars and spend it on something, I'm thinking subsidizing MFL owners would be close to pretty low on my list. Maybe build like a transit system that takes people where they actually want to go. Oh, why would yeah, you want to, why would you know, want to do that? Schools could use money maybe or lots of other things. Yeah, just right? spitballing here. You know, a few yeah. ideas. Yeah. Um, this idea you mentioned before, uh, to, to jump back to this, is some part of it just because it's us that people come to L.A. anyway? I mean, if you picked another city that doesn't have a huge tourist draw and a whole bunch of people come in, does it kind of work better there? Yeah, that's a really great question. So it's I feel like you've read my paper, even if you haven't. So um, the big tourist cities tend to see less of an effect of something like the Super Bowl than, let's say, Minnesota. I'm not saying Minnesota isn't a glorious tourist destination, right? Um, but because their hotel occupancy rates and other things like that tend to be lower, um, the Super Bowl could have a bigger impact in a city like that. So if you had the Super Bowl in like Poughkeepsie, it would be really good. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be a lot better. Wow. I, I still don't think you'd get to 474 million or whatever. Yeah. They're going to start to lobby for it, though. Uh, Lauren Heller, <laughs> economics professor, Campbell School of Business, very college in Georgia. Poughkeepsie could use $475 million. I'm sure the Poughkeepsie Chamber of Commerce would gra- greatly appreciate that. They'd, be, they'd appreciate $10. <laughs> All right, that's it for today. We're back tomorrow.